We have new developments in the multiple criminal trials into former President Donald Trump. Today, Mr. Trump's alleged co-conspirators in the Mar-a-Lago case, that would be Walt Nauda and Carlos de Oliveira, they appeared in a Florida courtroom to address the new charges brought against them by special counsel Jack Smith. Trump's lawyers were also there, representing his interests in this case. The new defendant here, Trump's property manager, Carlos Oliveira, did not enter a plea today. He still needs to lock in some local legal representation. But both Trump and his valet, Walt Nauda, pleaded not guilty to the new charges over their alleged scheme to delete security camera footage down at Mar-a-Lago. And while that classified documents case continues to move forward, so too does Jack Smith's other case, the one in Washington, D.C., Today, special counsel prosecutors revealed when exactly they hope the court will schedule that trial. Jack Smith's team told the court they want to begin the 2020 election case against Trump on January 2nd. Prosecutors argued in a filing that starting the trial on the second day of the new year before any of the nominating contests would vindicate the public's strong interest in a speedy trial. Now, we do not know whether or not the court will agree to that date, and Trump's legal team will almost certainly push back. But if the court heeds the government's wishes here, then, wow, Donald Trump has a very busy dance card in the month of January. Take a look at this. A potential criminal trial on January 2nd. And then four days later, the anniversary of the Capitol insurrection, January 6th. Nine days after that, it is the Iowa caucuses, which, of course, is the first contest of the 2024 Republican presidential primary. And then sometime around then, likely the very next day, Trump's legal team is scheduled to be in court for his second defamation case against journalist E. Jean Carroll. And then less than two weeks later, Trump's legal team is due in court again for a class action lawsuit brought over his role in an alleged grift involving video phones in the early 2000s. Just so we are clear here, in the same four-week period, Donald Trump could be facing legal jeopardy for alleged attempts to overthrow democracy and conning people into buying crappy video phones that really looked a lot like portable DVD players. He is truly one in a million, America. Anyway, whatever the judge decides, the special counsel's team is wasting no time in preparing for an early trial. Just minutes after requesting that early January trial date, DOJ prosecutors issued a separate filing saying that their 2020 election case may include a small amount of classified information. They asked the judge here, Tanya Chutkin, to discuss this matter at a hearing at the end of this month, which is interesting information. Now, keep in mind that all of this is happening the day before a very important hearing in this federal case against Mr. Trump. Tomorrow, Judge Chutkin is going to hear arguments from both the defense and the prosecution about whether to grant a protective order here. And that order would prohibit Trump from sharing evidence in this case with the public. Now, so far, there is very good reason to believe that Trump would want to do just that. I mean, Donald Trump has spent the last weeks very publicly attacking the prosecutors in this case and other cases. His comments have not been subtle. Here he was last night in an interview with Newsmax. 
Fannie Willis, the prosecutor in Georgia, what are your thoughts of her? This woman is not a capable woman. Jack Smith, uh, he's like a he's like a deranged individual. He's like a deranged human being. He's a sick puppy. Those kinds of comments, those kinds of comments are a real challenge for Trump, who cannot seem to stop saying them and his legal team. It is also a challenge for them because they cannot seem to convince him to stop saying them if they even want to. But those kinds of comments are also a challenge for the judge overseeing this case, a judge who has to balance Trump's legitimate First Amendment rights as a presidential candidate with the reality that Trump is already very much targeting the judge and the prosecutors in advance of a criminal trial. And he appears to have a predetermined strategy here, which is to talk as much and as loudly about this case as possible to shore up his defense. Joining me now is Chuck Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official. Also joining me, Glenn Thrush, Washington correspondent for The New York Times, who covers the Justice Department. Guys, thank you both for being here tonight. I I know, Chuck, um, you are uh, an important legal asset for all of us here at MSNBC in terms of your understanding of the nuances of the law here. And my question to you is, how difficult is the, uh, how difficult a position is Judge Chutkin in right now in terms of balancing what seems to be flagrant abuses of of the position of a defendant in any criminal case and his Trump's legitimate you know right to talk about what may be a very potent political weapon going into a presidential nominating contest? Uh, very difficult, Alex. I think you framed it exactly right. We've never had as a criminal defendant somebody who is also um, likely to be a major party nominee for president. So Judge Chutkin has to balance those First Amendment rights and his right, his interest in campaigning, his right to speak publicly about his campaign and his promise for office with the needs of a criminal trial, which include a lot of restrictions on a lot of defendants in ordinary cases around the country. And as you well know, there are restrictive rules in this particular federal court that limit what a defendant can say and limit what lawyers can say and give a judge a right to impose strict conditions on them. A whole separate question, of course, is whether Mr. Trump would abide any of those restrictions. He's not very good at that, as you know. Glenn, there's I mean, I don't I don't think I'm getting ahead of myself here and saying I don't predict that Trump has any inclination to stop doing what he's doing as evidenced by the behavior of his own lawyers, right? Like John Loro, one of his attorneys in this case, was out on the Sunday shows doing the thing you're not supposed to do. And if that's what your lawyer is doing, you can imagine he's not getting legal advice to the contrary. I mean, up until this point, Trump's general position has been to flout authority. And I have a hard time imagining it's going to be any different in this scenario. I mean, it's it's a morass, right? There are two reasons a judge issues a protective order to keep the jury pool from being tainted so that one so that the defendant can't be out there uh, talking about information that makes it very hard to choose the jury pool. And then the thornier matter of seeking to intimidate witnesses directly or indirectly through his public statements, which is something that we've also seen crop up in the Mar-a-Lago case. Right. The one thing we know is that Jack Smith, the special counsel, Uh, doesn't want to get caught into this trap, into sort of the bond trap of having there be being a a revisiting of these very lenient bond terms. It's virtually uh, Trump was was virtually uh, no no conditions were sort of imposed on his bond because Smith understands the potential problems with this. I think the judge is also in that case. So the question is, 
is it okay for him outside the courtroom to beat the hell out of the judge, to demean the prosecutor without necessarily violating a protective order? I mean, it might very well turn out that as long as he stays within the confines of not discussing the substance of the case or witness intimidation, that, you know, saying these seemingly outrageous things about the his main uh, the arbiter in the case and his main opponent legally might be within within the lines. But Trump is disruptive. The entire January 6th uh, incident and the indictment that was filed against him is one litany of progressive disruption. And to expect it to end at the courthouse uh, door is just not realistic. Yeah, I completely agree. And then the question is, what what sort of punishment awaits him on the other side? Um, Chuck, there's there like short of throwing him in jail, which seems an impossibility while he awaits trial. It's fines. I mean, is that the recourse that is on the table here? There's different ways to think about it. I agree with Glenn. I don't imagine that his bond would be revoked. And I think the practical difficulties of putting a former president with lifetime secret service protection in jail is enormous. But there are remedies. You touched on one, Alex. A judge can hold anybody who doesn't obey a lawful court order in civil or criminal contempt. But there's something else, and I think we ought to mention it. Look at what happened in the federal case in the Southern District of Florida. The government superseded with additional counts, including additional counts of obstruction of justice. So if Mr. Trump crosses that line, I think the government is going to have to just accept that they're going to be criticized and denigrated. But if the if Mr. Trump crosses the line and starts going after witnesses, intimidating, threatening, or harassing witnesses, that's a separate federal crime. And the government has the authority to go to a grand jury and to ask it to indict Mr. Trump for those additional crimes. Look, it may be the case that nothing stops him. It may be the case that nothing slows him down. But there are remedies for the government and for the judge. Yeah, I mean, adding more charges to what he already has mounting, that could be an incentive. We we may see, we may not see. Glenn, I have to ask you about the other sort of, e- I'll call it an Easter egg. I'm not sure if you think of it the same way. This notion that there may be some classified document involved in this, um, in the discovery. Do you have any sense of where we might be going on that? No, that was pretty interesting, I have to say. Um, I don't know quite what that would pertain to. I mean, we have enough... You know, we have an, enough mystery with uh, unindicted co-conspirator number six. Who we're all puzzling, trying to figure out precisely who that might be. But no, this was this was this was actually uh, quite a surprise. The fact there were a small number of classified documents, uh, uh, you know, indicates that it's not a, a big issue. The one area I would say, and I scanned again through the indictment to look for potential areas where that might be the case. There was some discussion uh, about. Uh, uh, meetings in the White House uh, involving national security, uh, a meeting with Milley that took place before one of the infamous Oval Office encounters with Department of Justice officials. So there was some bleed over between uh, those meetings and some of the the DOJ meetings. And then the other issue is, uh, in the indictment, Smith also refers to to, uh, the director of national security and uh, other folks involved in the intelligence community giving Trump uh, counsel that all of these various schemes were illegal. So there is some there's there's some brushing of shoulders with with areas that could be potentially classified. But your guess is as good as mine. 
Well, yeah, it would be ironic if it was Mark Milley, who, of course, was the subject of the Bedminster document waving around that now has worked its way into the Mar-a-Lago case. Um, Chuck, does the entrance of classified material into this potentially slow things down, given the fact that Trump's defense team is looking for any reason to delay, uh, you know, these trials and will presumably make an argument of uh, delay their classified certification, the CISA process? I mean, could that slow us down in an, in an unfortunate way here. Yeah, theoretically, but really, Alex, it shouldn't. The Classified Information Procedures Act, the act that you use when you have classified documents that the government wants to use at trial, can be a little bit cumbersome. But if you're talking about a small number of classified documents, it really shouldn't act as a break on these proceedings. And by the way, I think Glenn is right. Um, my sense is that when senior national intelligence officials come to the White House to brief the president, they often bring with them memos or PowerPoints, uh, sometimes charts or maps or diagrams. Those are often marked as uh, highly classified, in part because they're going in front of the president. And if those uh, senior officials who were briefing Mr. Trump um, were, and who were telling him that he had lost the election, there was no interference from Venezuela with voting machines. If they're giving him classified information, some of it may be in writing and uh, subject to the Classified Information Procedures Act. Ah, fascinating that it may all go back to fraudulent claims about international interference in the 2020 election. Chuck Rosenberg and Glenn Thrush, thank you guys both for your time tonight. Appreciate it. We have much more still to come this evening. Brand new ProPublica reporting on luxury items lavished on Justice Clarence Thomas. You're not going to believe the views. Best view of the Tetons. Plus, Republicans plow full steam ahead on the Biden crime family boondoggle. There is a why in here somewhere, and we are going to get to it with Claire McCaskill. That's coming up. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. I heard you yesterday refer to them as a crime family, and this was organized crime. So make it easy for us. What was the crime? Well, the crime is uh, trading policy for, for money. Which policy? Well, we're going to get into that. For months, months, House Oversight Chair James Comer and his Republican allies have been suggesting they will finally be able to get into the evidence about the Biden crime family, the Biden crime family. And now the House Oversight Committee has released a memo showing more than $20 million in payments from entities in Russia and Ukraine and Kazakhstan to the Biden family and their business associates. But there are no direct payments to Joe Biden listed. 
there is no evidence even that Joe Biden was involved in any of this. In other words, they still haven't gotten into that. This is now the third memo that fails to show evidence linking President Biden to his son's private business dealings. But the Oversight Committee says it doesn't have to show payments linked to Biden to prove he is corrupt. Joining me now is Claire McCaskill, former Democratic senator from Missouri. Claire, thank you for being here. I am trying to make sense of my position here because on one hand, it seems so obvious that they haven't actually gotten into the substance of these very incendiary claims they're making about the Biden family. And then another part of me thinks, at your own peril, ignore the machinations of the right wing. Where do you stand on this? Well, first of all, uh, what Hunter Biden did was dumb and I think had a great appearance of impropriety, may not have been illegal, but Joe Biden didn't do it. And by the way, we have a long history of family members playing off presidents to try to make money. Going all the way back to FDR, we had Richard Nixon's brother. We had, uh, frankly, we had Billy Carter, who was taking money from Libya. Um, so, th- and, and what drives me crazy about this is the blinking red light around Jared Kushner. Why yes. does the Senate not start a hearing? I mean, let's just briefly walk through what Jared Kushner did. He was put in to run a huge portfolio in a government where he had no experience. Running foreign policy in the Middle East peace process, no experience. What does he do first? He becomes best buddies with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He has he gets Trump to go to Saudi Arabia for his first trip. He has the crown prince in the White House dining room. He does all that. And what happens the minute Trump leaves office? He starts for the first time a private equity fund. He goes over and asks the crown prince for $2 billion. And you know what the committee said that runs a sovereign wealth fund for Saudi Arabia, Alex? They said, you know, this is a really bad idea. They did their due diligence and it failed miserably in every test of due diligence. And the management fees were excessive. And they recommended against making a $2 billion investment. Of course, the crown prince came along and overruled them and gave Jared Kushner $2 billion. Now, compare and contrast that with Steve Mnuchin, who was Treasury Secretary. He went to the Crown Prince to try to trade off his Trump connections. And instead, even though he'd run an investment company, they only gave him $1 billion and paid him less in management fees. This is a huge scandal. I do not understand why the Senate is not doing a hearing on all of the Trump grift And I'm not even talking about the money they made off foreign governments while they were in office. I I absolutely hear what you're saying about... I'm I'm fired up here on this. I'm glad you have been talking about it. (laughs) I think there's probably... I mean, I guess I wonder if you think the answer to that question, if you're looking at Hunter Biden, why not look at Jared Kushner? Is the reason Democrats, for example, are not leading the charge on that is because it acknowledged there's a tacit acknowledgement in it that what Hunter Biden was doing was sleazy, if not illegal, and that Democrats, maybe in large part in deference to the White House, are loath to do that. I mean, do you think that that's factoring in here? Is that part of the strategy in not touching Jared Kushner? I I don't understand that strategy. That's a good way to make every headline about Hunter Biden and have everybody forget what the Trump family did. Massive grift, why they were in office, and even bigger grift, 
trading off the influence of the name Trump after they got out of office. So I, I really think that what Hunter Biden did, I disagree with what he did. I don't know if his father disagreed with what he did. I know that he was tormented by the death of his other son and the addiction of Hunter. But I do know this. I know that the more we give them an open playing field to try to pretend like Joe Biden did something wrong because of what Hunter did, the the bigger mistake we make. We need to explain to the American people, first, that Joe Biden did nothing wrong. They have no evidence that he did anything wrong. And secondly, hey, don't look over here. Look at the real sleaziness that occupied the White House the last time Republicans were in charge. And Claire, I absolutely hear the urgency in your voice saying they need to explain, because I think a lot of people have maybe Democrats have PTSD from, for example, Swift Boat veterans or, you know, Donald Trump trotting out Bill Clinton's marital infidelities, literally the women who were involved in all of that at, you know, debates to to scare Hillary Clinton. Those tactics seem absurd. They were patently false in certain respects, and yet they were resonant. And I kind of wonder if the Hunter Biden thing, as patently ridiculous as it is, is trying to tie it to Joe Biden. I mean, Republican voters seem convinced about it. They're using it to defend the actions of Trump vis-a-vis his criminal indictments. And I wonder if you think it might be a problem with independence. Yeah, I, I, I worry about it. Um, I do think all those other times that relatives tried to make money off the presidency, it didn't really hurt the president's um, you know, Bill Clinton had a problem with Hillary's brothers. And, you know, they were all kind Billy Carter was a problem and Richard Nixon, he had a different problem. He had the same kind of problem that Trump has. He did illegal stuff. Um, I don't think it's really going to hurt Joe Biden, but I don't think we should allow them to get away with this. I just don't think we should allow them to get away with it. It is wrong what the Kushners did, what Ivanka and Jared did. It's wrong what all of them did. And we need to talk about it more. Claire McCaskill, I am glad we had this conversation. I needed your perspective here. Thank you, as always, for your time this evening. My pleasure. Still more to come tonight. The drip, drip, drip of revelations about the luxury gifts that Justice Clarence Thomas has received from his billionaire friends. That drip, drip, drip is turning into a flood. That's coming up next. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. The football team at the University of Nebraska is so popular 
that it has sold out every seat in its more than 85,000 seat stadium at every home game since 1962. And that is what makes this so significant. This is a photo of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife Ginny in the end zone at a game in 2019. At that game, the Thomases got to meet the team and they got to walk out of the players' tunnel before kickoff, which is pretty awesome. They then watched the game from a luxury skybox, access to which normally costs $40,000 a year. The Thomases had all access passes, but they did not have to pay a thing for them. Everything was paid for by businessman David Sokol. And Sokol didn't just get the Thomases in the game and the players' tunnel and the skybox. He also flew them there in a private jet. And then after the game, he flew them out to his private ranch in Wyoming. That's a picture of it for an all-expenses-paid fishing trip. Look at that view of the Tetons. Nothing better. All of it must be nice. But Justice Thomas disclosed none of this. Not the private jet or the player's tunnel or the swanky ranch. None of it. And it does not end there. ProPublica has identified at least 38 destination vacations, 26 private jet flights, eight helicopter flights, and a dozen VIP passes to sporting events that Justice Thomas and his wife received as gifts from wealthy friends who happened to have similar ideological perspectives as the justice. And this new story is deeply reported. The sourcing includes flight data and tax court filings and interviews with more than 100 eyewitnesses. What is unearthed here is a lifestyle that is very hard to fathom, especially for a Supreme Court justice. Crew members of this 126-foot luxury yacht told ProPublica that they recall having Justice Thomas on board multiple times in recent years. A chauffeur in the Bahamas recalled that his company once picked up Justice Thomas from a private jet and then drove him to the marina where this yacht docks. The yacht and the private jet, by the way, are both owned by a billionaire oil baron named Paul Novelli. And because Mr. Novelli sometimes rents out this luxury yacht, we know that the market price for a week on this thing is $60,000. Justice Thomas and his wife have also had the honor of flying on this custom private 737 jumbo jet that has been retrofitted with recliner seats and mahogany dining tables and also the Miami Dolphins logo. They got that privilege thanks to their friend Wayne Heisinga, another billionaire who used to own both the Miami Dolphins and the Florida Panthers and apparently used the jet to shuttle the Thomases to and from games because he was a really nice guy, especially if you were a Supreme Court justice. But maybe the most exclusive thing Justice Thomas appears to have been comped for was a standing invitation to this place, the members-only golf club The Floridian. It also used to belong to billionaire Wayne Heisinga, and he didn't charge admission to it. All of its 200-plus members were just invited by Heisinga to play and eat and relax for free. The club has since been sold and now charges $150,000 just as the initiation fee. Justice Thomas has been spotted there multiple times. Now, the Supreme Court effectively polices itself on disclosure for stuff like this, and ProPublica is upfront about the fact that not all of the hospitality they report on here may have required disclosure, 
all of the wealthy benefactors involved, essentially say that this hospitality shouldn't be judged so harshly because they are Thomas's friends. ProPublica has also not identified any legal cases these wealthy benefactors had before the court at the time that they were whining and dining and flying the justice all over the place. NBC News reached out to Justice Thomas for comment this morning, but we have not yet heard back. In a statement responding to previous reporting, Justice Thomas said that he had been advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. But it should be said that optics matter here because the public's faith in the court matters. That belief that the justices who sit on that bench are morally upright and are not, for example, in the pocket of anyone. So regardless of whether all of this had to be disclosed, it is still jaw-dropping that Justice Thomas chose to disclose none of it. The only reason we know about it is that ProPublica decided to investigate. One of their senior editors who has overseen all of their recent Supreme Court coverage joins me next. In early April, we found out about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's relationship with billionaire Republican megadonor Harlan Crow and all the lavish trips he'd taken around the world on Mr. Crow's super yacht. Trips that Justice Thomas failed to include in financial disclosure forms. Apparently, that was just the beginning. We learned subsequently that Clarence Thomas failed to disclose that nine years ago, Mr. Crow bought the home that Thomas's mother lived in and still lives in to this day. Then we found out that Thomas failed to disclose that Mr. Crow paid the boarding school tuition costs for Justice Thomas's grandnephew, running a tab that may have exceeded $150,000. And today we learned of the dozens of destination vacations and private jets and otherwise high roller experiences that Clarence Thomas has received from other billionaires who have basically kept Justice Thomas in a life of luxury. And we have learned all of this thanks to dogged investigative reporting from ProPublica. Jo- joining me now is Jesse Isinger, senior editor at ProPublica, who's overseen all of the Supreme Court coverage. Jesse, first of all, congratulations on a really, really important reporting that I know must have been time consuming and difficult. It's invaluable. It is a public service. But secondly, I mean, I was struck by the scale of this. And as a layperson that has not overseen all this coverage, is there any parallel in history to a justice taking this much from a group of wealthy individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and thanks for having me. And the, it's very flattering. And we were flabbergasted by that, too. Uh, where does the guy find the time? Um, 38 vacations in fewer than 30 years and on the court, that is. And it's surely an undercount. Um, we have lots of evidence that this is an undercount because we are extremely conservative about uh, the travel, both the destination travel and the flights, 26 private jet flights. So what we were struck with after the Harlan Crow stories um, were that we got tips that indicated that the scale was much greater, that the circle of benefactors was wider and that there were so many more gifts and undisclosed travel. And that's what we have focused on here today to emphasize that this is a scale that is unprecedented in modern court history, either from any federal judge or certainly from a Supreme Court justice. Uh, There is no precedent for this. 
What what is also interesting is you have as evidence、um, sort of Christmas cards that Ginny Thomas sent out featuring some of these lavish trips with their billionaire friends. They weren't hiding this. This was this was you know cocktail conversation. This was holiday greeting card material,、um, and yet none of this finds its way into the financial disclosure forms. Is it safe to say that that is evidence of a sort of consciousness of guilt, not in the legal sense, but perhaps maybe in the moral or ethical sense? Well, I think it's conscious. It's evidence that they were brazen、um, or thought that they, you know, the most generous interpretation is that they thought they were weren't doing anything wrong,、um, or they really didn't care,、um, or thought they wouldn't get caught.、Um, and、uh, it is quite remarkable and part of our massive trove of evidence、um, from. Jenny Thomas's own cards,、um, the pictures saying they were hosted in this multitude of events,、um, and there's some delicious details in there, such as、uh, he's got a kind of buddy lawyer who's an attack dog, Mark Paletta, and Paletta and his wife serenaded the Thomases、uh, with their own song、um, at one of these festivities. So、um, there were great details,、um, but you're right that. Uh, it was in the open. It was a kind of.、Uh, it was there to be seen,、um, and hasn't been for decades,、uh, which is a kind of remarkable in and of itself, and a comment on how we've covered and perceived the court、um, up until only very recently. Yeah, I, it's so good that you brought up that Mark Pauletta anecdote of his friends literally serenading him. I have friends. I love my friends. I think my friends love me. None of them serenade me singing lyrics they have written in advance off of their iPhones. I mean, that does not happen. I think in most circles of friends, and you、we、guys make it very important. We need better friends. Right, yeah, we need better with who、Thomas. will fly me around on their private jets. But but you make the point. I think it's important here that these are people who were not friends with him before he was a Supreme Court justice, and that is really relevant. The absolute adoration, the fealty, the sort of the 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 deference to him, almost as if he is a king in this situation, is not. I mean, to me, that just strikes me as an unhealthy, imbalanced relationship, and or one that. What, you one wonders what Clarence Thomas is getting out of it beyond the ego stroking. They don't have business before the court, but it just seems wildly asymmetrical. Did it seem that way to you? Absolutely, and、um, that's an extremely important、uh, point that you've just raised. Crow, Novelli, Heisinger,、um, and Sokol are all friends that Thomas made. After he joined the court, and we have the top ethics official in the Obama administration who had served in other administrations, saying that he actually told people the wealthy friends that you have are the wealthy friends that you have before you join the government. You're not allowed to make new rich friends.、Um, that's something that he actually said to people to emphasize their ethical responsibilities. And here, Thomas is flouting that in this extraordinarily brazen way.、Um, and there's a question of why. Why、um, are these? Ultra wealthy conservative donors enveloping Thomas in this life of luxury that he couldn't afford on a public servant's salary,、um, and I'm going to leave it to others to speculate. As you said in your introduction, we haven't found cases、uh, that these men had before the court directly, but there is a way that 
uh, Thomas has become ensconced in a world, a protective world of adulation, um, where all of his ideas are uh, echoed back to him. Maybe they are given to him or they're discussed in ways that, and we don't have evidence for this, but um, it's certainly a supposition that this is a chamber um, of, as you say, adulation and um, of you know, ideological closure um, that protects him from the outside world and envelops yes. him in luxuries at the same time. Envelops him in luxury like a thick Lauro Piano cashmere blanket, which I'm sure has been in the offering at some point along the way. Jesse Isinger, thank you on behalf of people who care about the integrity of this court, which should be all of us. Um, we really appreciate all the reporting. Good job. Thank you so much. Still ahead this evening, the deadly wildfires in Maui right now have been leaving dozens dead and they have been destroying priceless parts of Hawaiian history. We are going to talk about what has been lost to those flames coming up next. Today, President Biden issued a federal disaster declaration freeing up funds for the devastating wildfires that have been sweeping across Hawaii. Officials say at least 53 people have died, making it one of the deadliest U.S. wildfires in decades. In Lahaina, which is one of the hardest hit towns on the island of Maui, historically and culturally significant sites have effectively been reduced to ash and rubble. And that includes the famous 150-year-old banyan tree that was planted in 1873 to commemorate the first Protestant mission to Lahaina, which was 50 years earlier. It is now severely burnt, but thankfully it is still standing. The historical Baldwin Home Museum, which is an 1830s era house that was once home to a medical missionary who vaccinated the island against smallpox and is believed to be the oldest home in Maui, that has burned down. The walls of Wailoa Church, an 1820s house of worship where many of the early kings and queens of the Kingdom of Hawaii are buried, that was engulfed in flames, which you can see in that picture right there. And the Lahaina Heritage Museum, which sits in a historic courthouse and houses ancient Hawaiian artifacts, has been destroyed by the wildfires. Joining me now is Tai Kavika Tengon, professor of anthropology and ethnic studies at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. Professor, thank you for being here. I imagine this is a very difficult time for Hawaiians, as it is for all of us in America, just watching it unfold. And our condolences to you and anyone you know on the island. I, for, for us on the mainland here, we talk so little and honestly know so little about Hawaii's pre-colonial history. What does it mean to have these artifacts and these structures destroyed by the wildfire? Uh, thanks, Alex. And first, I'd like to uh, lift up all of those who've been impacted by the fires on Hawaii and Maui and our thoughts and prayers and appreciate all the, the, the goodwill that's going towards the islands. Um, with regards to the, 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 the past, the pre-colonial past of Hawaii and, and the significance of Lahaina and, and those objects there, um, it's, it's central to to understand how important uh, Lahaina has been in, in our history. It's the, the, the center of, of both political and religious power of the Maui chiefly lines. Um, Pre-colonial times, our islands were organized into chiefdoms. The Maui lineage is uh, prominently related to the Pi'ilani line. And King Pi'ilani unified the islands in the, in the Maui island of Maui 
uh, in the 16th century. Um, his daughter became a, a powerful um, lizard um, deity um, called Kihawahine, uh, who became a, an important protector of waterways and uh, her mana, her power, is also what allowed Kamehameha the first to unify all of uh, the islands of Hawaii. So the the, the place of Lahaina and and that uh, the the power there is um, really felt across uh, the islands. And to to lose those representations of of those history um, is is a really an important moment for all of the people of Maui, for Hawaii, and the world to to think about what it means to carry on history and in what forms. Yeah, and I, 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 when we talk about how we carry our history forward, I think that that's, I mean, a huge question as it concerns, like, what is actually unfolding in, in, in Maui today, right? This is a story in many ways about change climate change, about change in terms of agriculture and agricultural practices. I wonder if you think that there's enough of a conversation about how indigenous communities recover in the after effects of colonialism, industrial agriculture, and then, of course, how they are uh, poised to weather the effects of climate change. All of those factors seem to have converged here. Um, what's the discussion like on Hawaii about how to protect this, what I think is truly sacred land? Thanks for that. The, the, the conversation among Kanaka Oivi, or Native Hawaiians, um, in, in dialogue with indigenous peoples across the world has always been that of making sure that our, our knowledge, our, our practices, uh, our, our struggles um, are seen. Because our struggles for our sovereignty, for the continuity of our people on the land, is really about our efforts to maintain our, our in our language, kuleana, our, our responsibilities to steward the land in the right way, to make sure that it's there for future generations. This is knowledge that we carry on from those times of pi'ilani and before pi'ilani and, and try to bring forward um, into the present. Um, unfortunately, as you noted, those those centuries of change have led to a, a kind of in some ways lost, in some ways departure from those those practices of good stewardship of, of land. And the the knowledge is still there though. Um, and, and I think many of the carriers of that, including those in, in Lahaina, um, who despite the fact that they've just lost structures such as you, you noted the museum, there is an important cultural center in Naikane Maui, um, despite the fact that they've lost those physical um, structures and, and perhaps the objects there, um, they're nevertheless still committed to making sure that the world knows of the struggle to maintain these histories, the practices on the land, to restore the land in, in meaningful ways, uh, fish ponds um, and the, the taro uh, terraces have been prominent in Hawaiian efforts to return us to a way of being in, in proper relationship to place. It is a beautiful way of being. It is truly a magical place. And um, we wish you and all of Hawaii a, a swift recovery with, with all the, the knowledge and grounding in history that one can have at this critical juncture. Professor Tai Kavika Tengon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Alex. Th that, is, that is our show for this evening.